This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that we have your word to turn to, that that over the course of centuries you revealed yourself here a little, there a little, through the prophets in the Old Testament and through the apostles in the New Testament. And we have your word inscripturated, written down for us, that we can be sure of what it is. We have not just a few manuscripts, but we have thousands of manuscripts and partial manuscripts and quotations so that we can be certain that this is what you have revealed to us. We are not relying upon translations of translations of translations, but we have many manuscripts that go back within a generation or two of the original writers so that we can have confidence that we have indeed uh, been handed down your word and it has been uh, accurately translated for us in numerous translations that are available to us today and that we can know your word, your guidance for us, and we can come to understand who you are and what you expect of us. Since you are the creator and you have designed the human, human beings to be who they are in your image, that you are the author of the divine institutions, including marriage and family, that you are the one who has the right, the authority to explain and determine how these are to function to their maximum effect and impact so that within the marriage and within the family, we can fulfill the mission that you have given to us and that by doing so, we will experience uh, happiness and fulfillment unlike anything else in life. It does not matter what the circumstances are because the focal point, we understand, is serving you, and the byproduct of that will always be stability and happiness and joy. Now, Father, as we study these things this morning, we pray that you will help us to not only clearly understand your word, but also to see how this applies in each of our lives and thinking, that we may orient our thinking to you, to your word, that you might be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing today a study that now is some six or seven weeks old, a study on marriage and the family, a study that is grounded in the passage we're studying in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 21, where we have four verses that are very succinct in uh, just bulleting the primary responsibility of each member within a household, wives, husbands, children, fathers, and then it goes on to talk about masters and slaves. And this isn't the only place this is talked about. Ephesians, which was written at about the same time that Colossians was, Some we don't know which was written first, but I think they were both written within a very close proximity when Paul was still in prison in, in Ephesus. And as these were written, there's more of an expansion on in this section for the church in Ephesus than the church in Colossae. We don't know exactly why that would be. Perhaps it had to do with situations that were true in Ephesus that were not true uh, in Colossae. What's interesting is there are similar statements and passages in other epistles. Paul talks about authority 
in relation to government as well as talking, applying it to masters and slaves and Romans. He, Peter does it in almost a reverse order as we read in our scripture reading this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3. Paul would typically starts with the wives first and then husbands, then uh, children and parents, and then ends with slaves and masters, whereas Peter uh, reverses, uh, reverses that order. But in all of these passages, as I've pointed out, the, the foundation for this is not on a cultural tradition. Paul isn't saying this because this is the view he was taught as a pharisaical rabbi. Peter isn't saying these things because that's his Jewish cultural background. In fact, what they were saying when it's understood in terms of the balance is remarkable. It goes beyond anything that was operational in any culture at that time because what was said of the different uh, genders was, was, uh, was balanced in a way that it was not in any other, in any cultural expression at that time. And so the expectation uh, that one might have that, oh, well, you know, Paul just says it that way because that's what he was taught, uh, can't be substantiated by, uh, by, under, by the understanding of history that we have. He says things about women. He says things about men and their roles and responsibilities that went completely against uh, the grain of the culture at that time. Now, the reason I say that is because a typical response that we hear from people in our culture today is accusations of just this very nature, that they were just reflecting their culture, that uh, Paul was really a misogynist and he hated women, but that's only because you, you only get there if you start with an assumption that is unbiblical to begin with. And so we have to look at what the Scripture says. And what I've tried to uh, emphasize as we've gone through this is the, the context of all of Scripture, starting in Genesis 1 with the uh, original creation of male and female, both in the image of God, which emphasizes equality of person, and then proceeding from there to talk about the distinctions in role that existed even in perfect environment uh, prior to sin, and then the impact that uh, sin had on those original roles. Now we come to something where we're going to focus more on uh, this for the ladies today, the biblical instruction to wives in these parallel passages, and then next week we will come back and talk about uh, responsibilities for the husbands uh, and the men. Just to remind you, in this chart, which I developed over a couple of weeks, the upper uh, section deals with the responsibilities that God originally gave to Esha, the name that Adam gave to Eve originally before the fall, in terms of her purpose, the judgment that occurred in Genesis 3 from God after the fall, and then the redemption solution applied to that uh, judgment. And then the lower uh, the lower section deals with the role of the male, Ish, Adam, uh, and then uh, also the original purpose before sin, then the consequence of sin, and then uh, lastly the responsibility, that re- the redemption solution to deal with the judgment. And I say that because, as I pointed out last time, and I, am, I know I'm repeating some things, but... Some people need to hear some of these things 10 or 20 more times, and I'm going to tell them. The reason that that certain things are not said to men or women is because they weren't part of the curse. That's what I'm trying to emphasize here, is the original purpose that God gave for women, for the wife, was to be a co-ruler. She was to, as equally in the image and likeness of God, she was to rule over the fish of the sea, beasts of the field, birds of the air, and she was to bring a creation into order under the authority of the human race as the God, bear, the, the God image bearers on earth. Uh, she was to, uh, specifically in terms of her role, to assist Adam, a, a extremely significant responsibility and role. 
and to be part of the process of multiplying and filling the earth through procreation. Because of sin, her role distinctives were challenged and and there was going to be difficulty now for her in the specific areas related to those initial mandates. And that's important to see that in what God says to to uh, Eve after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Now she would have a, 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 a desire to dominate and to control her husband, and she would experience uh, increased pain and sorrow in childbirth. So those two things mentioned in Genesis 3 directly impact her mission to assist the male. Now she wants to dominate him. And uh, in the uh, achieving the objective of uh, multiplying and filling the earth, now there's going to be pain and difficulty associated with that. Because part of the cur- that cursed judgment was that she would desire to dominate and to control her husband, the redemption solution is addressed to that, that she is now to submit to her husband. So that command to submit is pointed to the woman because of the curse, that there's a general trend there that she's going to want to dominate, and uh, she needs to add the corrective now as a believer to submit to her husband. On the <clears throat> In parallel to that, the, the male was to lead, He's the responsible leader. All the commands in Genesis 2 are directed to the male. He's to guard to keep the garden, to also in multiplying and filling the earth. But with the curse judgment, now the earth is going to fight him. And so there's going to be toil uh, associated with his labor. And it's not fun to constantly fight the battle. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know from talking to many of you that it is a real challenge many times to get up in the morning and to go fight that battle. And that impacts men and women. That's not just a male thing. But this is primarily addressed to men because uh, it was their primary responsibility to be the one uh, in leadership and the one out there in fulfilling the original creation uh, mandate. It's easy for men to get... They uh, get confused about their role. They either overstress the leadership role and transform it into tyranny, or they go the other direction and they become irresponsible and lazy. There have been some interesting studies done, not in recent years, but uh, read a number of these back in the 70s, dealing with some of the social experiments that took place in the Soviet Union in trying to change marriage in... in um, uh, when communism first first took over, and what happened socially as areas of responsibility that had been previously uh, restricted to men were open to women. And as women came into those fields, the men pretty much gave up and went into the vodka bottle. And that has led to a consequent result socially in the former Soviet Union where many of the males are just losers. They are alcoholics. They're lazy. I've seen this for 20 years almost of going over to the former Soviet Union. The women have their act together. They want to be educated. Many of them have been deserted by some guy, and they have one or two children they're trying to raise, and they want to they want to provide for themselves. And they're in that ag- aggressive leadership role. They've become more, in some ways, more masculinized, where the the men are just just losers. And the sad thing is, if you watch carefully what's happening in Western civilization, because of the impact of our shift in terms of role reversal, is we're seeing those same results, not as extreme as uh, was seen in the former Soviet Union, but we're seeing that today. We see more and more women becoming more aggressive in their leadership, taking on more and more male characteristics because that's what they have to have in order to compete with men in the in the workplace. And what happens uh, correlative to that 
is men are becoming more feminized, and I don't mean that in a homosexual manner, but they are becoming less aggressive. They have to be, we're told, be in touch with your feminine side. And a lot of other things are going on in the culture so that men today are not are very confused about their masculinity and what it means to be a male. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping I can develop some things on this as we go forward, but it's important to understand that, that we've all been impacted negatively by our culture in both of these areas. And because the sin nature trends within males and females is what it is, it feeds that so that, that men have a tendency. Now, remember, I'm talking in a general sense. Men have a tendency to uh, want to not deal with all that toil, so I'll just be a couch potato. You want to go to work, great. You go to work, and I'll just sit at home and watch TV and, and uh, be a gluttonous drunkard. I'm exaggerating, but this is hap- this happens more and more, and we're seeing this in our culture where we're having... Uh, more and more single moms raising children. And we're a long way from where the former Soviet Union is today, but I'm seeing those trends already. And it's because as a culture, we are have forgotten what the roles are between men and women and where they should function and not function. And I think it's a real challenge for men to be men in a biblical sense and for women to be women in a biblical sense in today's culture, because when women go into the workplace and you're in a corporate environment, there are pressures on women that are that that do tend to force them into a more masculine uh, framework. And same things, same kinds of things happen uh, happen with men. And uh, men, I think part of being a man, part of being a leader is to be aggressive. Now, aggression can go, because of sin, everything can be distorted. And men can have that shift towards a, a negative aggressiveness. But what happens in our culture, and I've seen this in a number of these personality profile type tests that are that are given, is that the identification of aggression in a male is often viewed negatively because of the models that are used on personality. And I know that in one uh, particular case, aggression on the part of the male, which is often just his his desire for initiative, his desire for success, is identified by with the word hostility. So that men are are discouraged from being too competitive, or from being too aggressive. Because you have to now compete with women in the workplace, and this is going to uh, negatively affect the women that you're working with. And, and, and none of this is simple because it's a systemic problem. Uh, you can't go out and say, well, we just need to tweak this or tweak that. There's been this systemic collapse culturally of our understanding, uh, first of all, who we are as creatures of God, image bearers. J- Darwin took care of that. If you don't believe you're a creature created in the image of God with a divine mission, then your view of who you are is 180 degrees opposite the view of a Christian. And then that impacts how you understand your role and purpose as a male or as a female. And then we get things even more cluttered up because there are good-sounding cultural values for men and women but they're not really biblical. They just sound like it. Then there are some that are way off, off, off the mark, and, and then there are others that are on the mark. For example, when you see these kinds of, of um, distortions that take place, women shouldn't work outside the home. Well, wait a minute. Let's go to Proverbs 31 and look at the descriptions of a, the godly woman in Proverbs 31. She's exercising leadership. She's exercising responsibility. She's working outside the home. She's trading in real estate. She's making money for the family. That runs completely counter to the caricature that the culture says you must hold towards women if you take a biblical view. Too often the biblical view is you just want women to stay at home, 
have babies, be barefoot and pregnant, and that's it. But see, that's not the biblical model either. That's a distortion of it. So we have to be very careful with what the text, what the Scripture says in terms of these role distinctions, and because the Scripture may say something about what men should do or what women should do, don't become guilty of putting that into a culturally distorted framework. We have to really be honest with what the text says and what's emphasized there. Now, a couple of key words that show up in the Scripture passages we're looking at uh, that relate to women. The first is the word submit. Hupatasso in the, in the Greek, it means literally to place something under something else, to subordinate something. So we all have that. I don't care who you are, somebody here works for somebody else. Uh, even if you're the President of the United States, you putatively, that means supposedly, work for the people. Okay, somebody's in authority over everybody. Nobody gets away from the authority issue. So everybody's in authority. Everybody's subordinate to somebody. And you've never really had the joys of work unless you've been under the authority of somebody who is incompetent and irresponsible and uh, and you know that you can do the job ten times better than they can, but they're the one who, ones who get all, all of the credit. And so we've all been in unjust circumstances and situations where the person in authority shouldn't be there. But that's they're the one who's in authority, and we have to learn that authority orientation. So this whole concept of submission is one that's related to understanding absolutes in the area of authority. And then the other word that's used is the word fear. Sometimes it's translated awe. It's the... the uh, Greek word phabath, where, which we should um, uh, understand that in terms of some of the cognates that come over into English. It means uh, terror, fear, alarm, fright, but it also has positive connotations in terms of reverence, respect, and awe. And so just the term fear, sometimes in the King James it translated it fear, but what it is emphasizing is that reverential respect uh, side of the uh, side of the term. Now, I want to just look at the the First Peter passage very briefly, and then I want to understand the context a little bit. Peter addresses wives in First Peter three one through six. Now, verse six, ladies, is not saying you have to refer to your husband as Lord. As a husband, that's a good thing. Okay, I'm just joking, but. Because the term Lord was just a, a term of respect. It, it, it's equivalent to our term for, for sir, the recognizing the authority, leadership within the home. Some people have real problems with 1 Peter 3, 6, but this is in a context. The context is women likewise. See, there's a comparison here, and what we see in the context is that verse 1 is going to address the role and responsibility and authority position of women in a manner that is similar to that of slaves and masters. It's not saying that women are slaves any more than employees are slaves. Our children are slaves because they're under somebody else's authority. It is simply talking about the role of, of submission to authority. Uh, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Now, a couple of things I pointed out before, and I want to point out again, is it doesn't say, husbands, make sure your wives are submissive to you. See, this is addressed to their volition, not your volition. You're not the Holy Spirit in the relationship. And that that, that response from your wife needs to come from their own uh, spiritual growth and, and recognition of what the Word says. Uh, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the Word. This is where it gets tough. But it's tough for all of us in different spheres. You're married to some to a man who's supposed to be the leader, the authority, the spiritual head of the home, and he is a spiritual loser. He's anti-Christian. He's living out his own lust patterns. Whatever it is, you're stuck in a marriage with this guy who is not fulfilling his responsibility. So what is your responsibility? Leave, right? No, that's not what the Scripture says. 
But what I'm going to point out here is that that we have to contextualize this in First in Peter. And what Peter points out is every Christian's in an authority relationship. Every Christian runs the risk of being under the authority of a loser, whether it's government, whether it's a master and a master-slave relationship or an employer or whatever the relationship is. And the role of the believer in any authority relationship is to honor and respect the office of the person who's in authority and not to rebel against them. Why? Why does the Scripture put this emphasis on authority so much? Because that's the original sin with Satan. He rejected the authority of God. And so whenever we take it upon ourselves to, to reject, to, to react to, to rebel against a legitimate authority, even when they're wrong, now there's a qualification there, but even when they're wrong, uh, we're, we're wrong if we do it. Two wrongs don't make a right. Now when an authority tells us to do something that violates the direct instruction of Scripture. That's the only time we have a right to obey God rather than man. But in every other category, we need to be submissive, whether as a citizen to government or as a soldier in the military or whether a student in a classroom or whether an employee at at, at a job or whether a wife to a husband. The same principles apply because it all comes back to the authority issue. So Peter says, even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. This is the silent witness. This is you know, no nagging, no uh, constant reminder, uh, uh, not leaving tracks all over the house, uh, whatever kind of hints you want, leave your when you're listening to Bible class on your uh, iPod or whatever, not plugging it into the stereo and broadcasting it throughout the house. You know that it's, it's quietly it's, it's your application and devotion to the Word that's going to carry the message. But if you have a problem with patience, now I know that doesn't apply to anybody here. But those people out there who have problems with patience, uh, they want this, they want to hurry things up. And sometimes this take, this may take almost a lifetime. But what you build in that lifetime, don't focus on the fact that, oh, I'm just suffering so much for the Lord because I'm in this lousy marriage, is by doing it right, you're, dim- you're, you're, you're building rewards in heaven. It's gold, silver, and precious stones, which is one of the major themes throughout all of First Peter is we are all co-heirs together in Christ, and we need to recognize that all these commands to believers in First Peter are designed to focus on that future uh, reward and judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. So Peter says, when they observe your chaste uh, conduct accompanied by fear, that is respect for them. Do not, and then he goes into two verses dealing with uh, dress and comportment. He's not giving a legalistic standard here. He's putting the focus rather on the character, not the outside. Uh, the world around us tends to put all the focus on how you dress and designer clothes and fashion and that. But Peter says it's not that that's wrong. It's that the focus is on character. It's what's on the inside that matters, not not the outside. And then uh, he ties this back to the patterns in the Old Testament. Now let me contextualize this for us. I want you to turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Because it's, I think it's very easy to distort if, uh, some of the things that are said here if we don't understand the framework of what Peter is doing. Peter is laying out for his audience the fact that they're going through suffering. They're going through uh, persecution. There, there's a lot of opposition to uh, his readers. His audience is primarily Jewish believers, and they're under attack from other Jews that are not believers in Jesus as the Messiah. First Peter, Second Peter, James, Hebrews are all uh, uh, epistles addressed to, to uh, Jewish uh, Jewish believers. In the beginning of uh, First Peter, he says to the uh, 
uh, to the pilgrims or those who are in the diaspora, which is a technical term for the scattering of Jews throughout the Gentile world, uh, to those in the diaspora in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he is addressing it to those Jewish believers in the diaspora. It is not primarily addressed to, to Gentiles, but it applies to all who are in uh, the body of Christ. He focuses on the fact that we have been born again in verse 3 to an inheritance, verse 4, incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. So his focal point to believers is preparation and focus on inheritance and running the race well in terms of that inheritance. Inheritance, as I pointed out before, involves some things that are true for all believers and some things that are different for every believer. Those who run the race well uh, are rewarded for their uh, divine good, that which is produced under the ministry of the filling of the Holy Spirit when you're in fellowship. That's identified as gold, silver, and precious stones in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in the judgment seat of Christ. That which we do in the power of the flesh, no matter how good it is, it's still done in the power of the sin nature, the flesh, and so it is going to burn up at the judgment seat of Christ, and we're left with uh, nothing nothing rewardable, but we still have eternal life. So what all believers have in common is a resurrection body, eternal life, and eternity with the Lord. What we have in distinction is that some believers are going to have different uh, kinds of rewards, different responsibilities, uh, different levels of authority in the future kingdom based on uh, how mature we are in this age and how faithful we are. And so this is how Peter is motivating his readers in terms of the suffering they're going on at the present time. And so notice verse 6 of of, uh, chapter 1. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So he's talking about the fact that you have joy... Same thing as James says in James 1, you have joy now even though you're going through trials uh, right now. The long-term result is great joy. And then he goes on to say, uh, in, and he transitions into talking about suffering in the next paragraph in, in verse 10. He talks about this salvation that is a focus on the future uh, from the prophets in the Old Testament. And he uses that to to transition into talking about the suffering of Christ. This is a major theme, uh, part of 1 Peter, is that we go through suffering. We whine and mew about the fact that we are, oh, we're suffering. It's so hard. I'm married to this guy I'm supposed to follow and respect, and he's such a bum. Uh, I just want out of this relationship and out of this marriage where I can go find somebody that's that's meaningful or just not have to deal with a man in my life at all. Uh, God does not want me to suffer like this. What have you just said? That God does, want, does not want me to face undeserved suffering. Ooh, what about Jesus? That's the drumbeat behind all of this in 1 Peter, the suffering of Christ. Nobody ever suffered more than Christ and experienced more undeserved suffering than Christ because he was absolutely perfect. But the more perfect he was, the more people hated him, and he suffered because of that. And so if you want to cry and complain about your circumstances and your undeserved suffering, let's measure it against the standard of Jesus. Oh, you don't measure up. You don't even show up on the graph. You haven't even made a bump. We have to enlarge the picture 20,000 times to get your suffer, undeserved suffering even to appear on the chart. So let's not worry about that. That's what he's saying, that he constantly takes us back to that absolute standard that Jesus is the one who really had true undeserved suffering. Remember, you're a fallen creature in a fallen world. Ultimately, any suffering what we face is deserved in some sense because we're living in a fallen world. Blessing is not deserved. That's why it's called grace. What does grace mean? Undeserved blessing. But we say that all the time, and what we really say is undeserved, but it is a little bit. 
That's the asterisk that we, we put there. So he transitions to talking about the suffering of Christ, the spirit of Christ who was in, the, in them, that was in the, in the prophets in the Old Testament, was indicating when he testified beforehand, that's through the prophecies of the Old Testament, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that follow. Now, that's another key word in in First Peter is the glory that comes. We may suffer now, but we have to keep our eye on the end game, which is the judgment seat of Christ and rewards and blessing and inheritance because that's for eternity. Whatever suffering we're going through now, whatever your circumstances might be that are negative, that is less than a grain of sand in comparison to all the sand on all the beaches compared to the time now compared to eternity. You're going to forget about it, and it's going to disappear. So the the background on this is going to be talking about the suffering of Christ, and then there's a hint that comes up at the end of verse 12 that this is, as we endure undeserved suffering, in the light of that, the angels are watching us because watching you and I go through undeserved suffering teaches them things about God and his grace that they can't learn any other way. Isn't that interesting? These are things, in the end of verse 12, angels desire to look into. So that's our heavenly witness. Now, skipping on down in, uh, to verse 17, Peter says, If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, that will be at the future judgment seat of Christ, conduct yourselves, that is, how you live your life a certain way now throughout the time of your stay here in fear. See, there's a first mention of that word fear. So ladies, later on when it says you need to respect your husbands in fear, that's not in isolation. Every believer is to live their life in fear. That is in respect to whose authority? God's authority. So this isn't something that is uniquely laid out for women, that you need to be living your life in fear or reverence or respect to your husband. These things that are commanded of women in terms of one relationship, are also commanded to every woman and every man, every believer in many other areas. So it's not something unique. So we're to conduct our life in fear. Why? Because we know that we were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from our uh, empty manner of life, from the tradition of our fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without Spot. So the ground of this is under, again, what was that? That was the undeserved suffering of Christ. It's what should motivate us in our own measure of undeserved suffering. Skip down a little bit to verse 22. There, Peter writes, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth uh, through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, and there he uses a, uh, a compound word, a word related to philos, Philadelphia, where we get the name of Philadelphia in the ancient world and modern Philadelphia means lover of the brethren. It has to do with an an attraction. This isn't just agape. This has to do with philos, which is more of an affection term than agape. We are to, through the Spirit, notice you can't do it on your own. Uh, It's through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, We are to love one another, and that is going to uh, shift the terminology there uh, to agape. So in this context, this is uh, something that is uh, uh, where agape and uh, and philos are, are very closely related. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Okay, so we're all commanded to love one another, and you pick up both of these different uh, Greek uh, words for love in our, all of our relationships. So now just let's just skip down to uh, chapter 2. Chapter 2 talks about Jesus again in terms of the Old Testament revelation of Jesus and how is he described in starting in verse 4 of chapter 2. We come to him as a living stone rejected by men. Now, this is something I've heard for years in, in, in any kind of romantic relationship is when there's a problem it's the, and that results in rejection. 
And everybody, everyone here has, has experienced that uh, to one degree or another. But it is rejection. Now, who's experienced the greatest level of rejection? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to talk about rejection, don't focus on whatever it is you're experiencing. I'm not minimizing what each of us have experienced because it's very painful when we go through those times of rejection, whether it's rejection from parents, rejection from children, rejection from someone in a romantic relationship, rejection from a spouse in marriage. Rejection is a tough thing to deal with. It is undeserved suffering. But our, the rejection level we experience is just microscopic compared to the rejection that Christ experienced. That's why understanding Jesus and what he went through is such a source of comfort for us because he handled his rejection the same way you and I handle reje- are, are supposed to handle rejection, and that is by depending upon the whole Holy Spirit and claiming the promises of the Word of God. He didn't rely on his omniscience, his omnipotence, or his omnipresence to handle his rejection because that would have violated his incarnation. He does it the same way we do because he set the precedent for us to show us how we can also follow in his pattern and uh, handle whatever we face by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So Jesus handles uh, faced and handled rejection. That's brought up again from an Old Testament quote at the end of verse 7, the stones which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Skip down now to where we get into part of the core focus of this epistle. And this, the core focus of this epistle really does emphasize the role of authority and submission in all the different spheres of life. We come to uh, chapter 2, verse 13. The first thing that, first time he uses the word submit, he says, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now, as much as this irritates some conservatives, that means even those tax laws you think are unjust because you think they're unjust. But God says that we're to submit to the authorities over us. Now, within our system of government in the United States, we have to uh, uh, we have different ways that we can challenge that legally, and we should. There's, but but we live in a fallen world. We live in the cosmic system, and even if we ran this country perfectly according to the Constitution as it was originally written and intended, guess what? It's still a fallen government in a cosmic system, and it's still never going to be perfect. So don't fall into a conservative political utopic trap either, okay? No government on this earth till Jesus comes back is going to be perfect, no matter how wonderful we might think the Constitution is. There's always going to be things that are wrong because the people who inhabit those offices are fallen sinners. Of course, that doesn't mean we are, right? right. So we're to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to king is supreme or to governors, those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God. Now, this is a critical verse here. You ought to have it underlined. So many people want to know, what's God's will in this circumstance? God tells us very clearly what his will is in a number of circumstances. We tend to ignore those and want to know what his will is in something else. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. We are in positions of undeserved suffering by people who are in authority so that we can be a testimony to angels by doing good in the face of evil. Two wrongs don't make something right. So even when we think that the law is unjust or the authority as an individual is unjust, we do we are to do the right thing according to Scripture and put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Notice the conduct of the believer is what will put to silence, but when? Maybe not in our generation. But see, this is, a, this is com- comparable to the wife 
that's in a position where she has a spiritual loser for a husband. And so what has to happen? She has to win him by her conduct, not by, you know, addressing it overtly. So I'm just pointing out what Paul says to, to wives in the, that paragraph is completely consistent with what he's saying to Christians in every other, every other realm. Then he concludes that section by saying, honor all, love the brotherhood, he's repeating that again, and fear God, honor the king, fear God, respect for God. Again, all believers are to have respect and honor for God, the one who's ultimately in authority. Now he's going to change topics in verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. There's that word fear again. We get submission again and we get fear again. That the slave, actually, that we, I think the modern translations, including the New King James and others, soften this a little bit. It's originally slaves in the, in the New, Te- New Testament and, and that was a connotation because they were in a slave, it was a slave relationship. Now that has application to employees and employers by virtue of an a fortiori argument. This is the stronger, the most extreme situation, so it would apply to all lesser uh, situations. But notice the, the, the situation. Be submissive to your masters with all fear, with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle. What's he saying? He said, it's easy to obey a good guy. It's easy to do what the good boss says. It's easy to do what, what the guy who's your friend and, and helps you d- does, but, but if he's harsh, if he's, if he's unreasonable, if he's irrational at times, if he treats you with, with little or no respect, if he's harsh and you obey him, what does Paul say? This is one of those verses most people want to cut out of their Bible. This is commendable If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Notice a couple of things there. First of all, it's commendable only under certain circumstances. It's only commendable if you are respectful to the irresponsible authority if you're doing it in obedience to God. You've got to be in fellowship and in obedience to God. That's what it means in conscience' sake. Because that's because God has said you need to obey your master. So you're sitting there going, I don't want to obey this guy. This guy is just such a loser. I don't even want to work for him. But this is what God says I'm going to do. I'm going to submit to God. That's the issue. You're not necessarily not not the master. You are there to please God. And this is what Paul says the same thing in the passage we're studying in uh, Colossians. And then Peter goes on to say, for what credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults, in other words, when you have really messed up and you suffer the consequences, we all know we deserve it. And so we don't complain about it because we know we deserved it. But when you do good and suffer for it, when you've done everything right and you're penalized and punished and beaten for doing the right thing, And so it's wrong for you to be punished. You still keep your mouth shut, and this is commendable before God because you endure it patiently. For to this you were called because what's the foundation for this? Christ suffered unjustly. So no matter how unjust you may think your circumstances may be, let's take it out, put it in context, look at Christ. Now we understand it. For Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. And he, and he reminds us through a quote from the um, Old Testament, that Christ committed no sin, nor his deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges. He, he focused on God, he put it in the Lord's hands, and he did the right thing. And he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Okay, let's go to the next section. This is where now at near the center of this epistle where he's talking to wives, like wives and husbands here. 
Wives, likewise, be submissive. Same word he's used in relation to slaves to masters and, uh, to, and to government. Be submissive to your own husbands, that even if you do not obey, uh, even if some do not obey the word, they could be an unbeliever. But see, you made that decision to marry an unbeliever. Maybe somebody made it for you, but that's where you are. Uh, maybe they're an unbeliever. Maybe they're just a rebellious believer. That they may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe chaste conduct accompanied by fear. What, no matter what the objection is, ladies, when, uh, anybody else, when you're in undeserved, undeserved suffering, if you're focusing on the fact that oh, I'm having to go through this, what's the key word there? I. Just self-absorption. You're more focused on why I'm getting this undeserved suffering rather than how does God want me to glorify him as I go through undeserved suffering. That's the focal point. And so uh, there, your conduct toward that person in authority, in this case the wife to the husband, is one of fear. Then there's, uh, he addresses an issue that, that is um, uh, also parallel to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. Here, uh, Peter says, don't let your adornment be uh, outward. In other words, it's don't just focus on the externals. And that's a real problem. Today. Everybody focuses on externals. We live in a superficial world. Don't let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. He's not saying that that is wrong in and of itself, but when that's the focal point instead of character, that's the problem. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit that is a that those terms there mean someone who's properly oriented to authority doesn't mean you're a doormat didn't mean Moses was a doormat doesn't mean Jesus was a doormat it means that they are incredibly strong because under unbelievable pressure to do otherwise they remained or, properly oriented to authority that's the issue in this manner, in former times, the, and so then there's the analogy in verse 5 to the Old Testament, that the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. And then he draws an example from Genesis uh, chapter 18, verse 6. Sarah obeyed Abraham. In that passage, she refers simply to Abraham as, uh, as Lord, calling him Lord, Genesis 18, 12, uh, recognizing he was the head of the home. Now, Paul says the same kind of thing in 1 Timothy 2, 8, uh, 8 to 9. He said, and I put 8 in there because he's, he addresses men first. And he uses the term for males, not the term anthropos, which can be male or mankind, but the term andros, which means, or on air rather, which means males. I desire, therefore, that the males pray everywhere. Okay? Emphasis. Men in the local church are to be getting together to pray because you're men and because you're the spiritual leaders in the church. If you're not doing that, you're not obedient to the word. You're not fulfilling your part of your spiritual leadership responsibilities as men. Now, they're to lift up holy hands. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be charismatic and walk around raising your hands. The word holy applied to hands means sanctified means you're in fellowship, okay? There's no sin without wrath, without doubting. Lifting up holy hands, their custom, their custom was to raise their hands when they prayed. So what Paul is saying, when you do that, they need to be holy hands. It's not the lifting up of the hands that he's emphasizing. It's that the hands need to be sanctified. You need to be in fellowship. In like manner also, so... The male responsibility is prayer, which entails all the spiritual leadership in the congregation. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel. You don't want to create a situation where the men are so out of fellowship from lust because of what you're wearing that they don't they can't leave the church. Modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with uh, braided hair, gold or pearls, or costly clothing. Now, what he's getting at there is that was typically how a prostitute would dress in that culture. So you don't come to church dressed like a hooker. <laughs> Want to make sure everybody's still awake. 
but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. The emphasis is on character and spiritual growth and spiritual fruit, not on external uh, external adornment. Now, I'm not going to go into it. I didn't make a slide on it. But the very next verse, Paul says, but I don't allow women to teach or have authority over men. He didn't say I don't allow women to teach and have authority over men. He said, I don't allow women to teach or have authority over men. There are some things that women are restricted from doing, just as there are some things men are restricted from doing. I haven't seen a male give a baby yet, and I haven't seen too many men out marching a picket line saying, we demand equal rights, we want to get pregnant. Anybody, am I wrong there? No. See, but, but what happens is women want to be men, but the men don't want to be women. They just want to be lazy bums. Uh, so, the, but there are restrictions there, and the restriction comes out of what happened in Genesis two and Genesis three. That's the foundation for his argument later on in that chapter, which we'll get to later on. Now, just let me just wrap up First Peter very, very, very quickly as we're, we go through here. The husbands are then addressed in verse seven that to dwell with their wives, giving honor to their wife as a weaker vessel. We'll address that next time when we come back and talk to men. Then in conclusion, he says in verse 8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, have compassion for one another, love as brothers. Philadelphia, that's the third time now. Be tenderhearted, be courteous. You know, if I could just get every husband and every wife to follow this verse, we wouldn't have any marriage problems. It's just basically good manners. Plus the Holy Spirit. Have compassion, be of one mind, have compassion for one another, Love as brothers, be tender-hearted and courteous with one another. Don't return evil for evil. Don't revile. Don't bicker. Uh, but on the contrary, bless one another because you know that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Ooh, see, he slipped that one right in there. He said the reason you, this needs to characterize all your relationships, including your marriage, is because one day you're going to be standing before the judgment seat of Christ and we want to have some rewards there because that's what glorifies God. So he focuses on, on inheritance. Then he gets into this section dealing with suffering again in the, in the uh, uh, next section. And look at verse 13. He comes back to this general theme. He says, who, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Whoever you're married to, if it's not going well and you suffer for righteousness' sake, God says it's a blessing. Skip down to verse 17. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Why? Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sin. See, every time he comes back to the cross. Verse four, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh... So again, emphasizing Christ's suffering. Then if you go down to a little bit further in that chapter, above all things, we're to have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Uh, as to each one has received a gift, minister to one another. He goes on there. Then verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. It's, it's, it's living today in light of eternity, and that we may suffer. Verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So suffering is... is the backdrop, suffer because this is the will of God if you're doing right. And then one last couple of passages to note. And First uh, Peter 5, 5, there's a comparison to young people. Submit to your elders. Everybody's got to submit to somebody. But young people have to submit to the more mature, the elders. Yes, all of you, all of you now, uh, that doesn't leave anybody out. All of you be submissive to one another and clothed with humility you can't be submissive without humility. But God, he reminds us, quoting from Proverbs, God resists 
the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. If you're in a relationship where the person is in authority over you, is unjust, doesn't care about spiritual things, and is all confused and distorted, the solution for you and for me is humility, submit to that authority, to submit to God, and let God deal with it. He's the one who will exalt you in due time. And how do we do this? By casting all our care upon him because he cares for you. That's the context of that promise. Then in verse 9 we read, Resist him, that is, resist the devil, steadfast in the face, faith, because you know that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So again, it comes back down to, to suffering. So what have I said here? What I've said is that, ladies, your responsibility is to follow the leadership of your husband. Well, he's not leading. Well, if you don't do anything, maybe he will actually begin to lead. Some of you are married. I've seen this mostly with younger, younger couples. Oh, but he makes so many mistakes. We all learn more from our mistakes. I think one of the hardest things, it's like going back to the doctrine of the dance, the problem that women have is that they don't know what's coming and they have to dance backwards. As somebody said about Ginger Rogers and, and Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers had to do everything that Fred Astaire did and she had to do it backwards and she didn't expect it to, what was coming. It's not easy. Women have the greater challenge but the greater opportunity. But it's not an opportunity that's unique or distinct. God, Peter, Paul are not picking on women. They are just applying the general principles that God lays out for all believers to each of our different roles and responsibilities. Now, one more thing before I go on, just so I can hit it. There, there are distinctions between women who are older and women who are younger. Younger women are focused on the family. That doesn't mean you can't work outside the home, but your focus is different when you're younger. When you're older, you can work outside the home, have a career, all, all those other things without the conflict of the, the, the motherhood issue. But where do you go for help? Older women. I think churches, if we did it right, churches would have a framework for older women, and I think maybe it just has to come from their own initiative, older women to have relationships with younger women. When you have young couples, young men and young women, need mature Christians who are older that they can go to when they hit various speed bumps so that they can figure out how they're supposed to get past them. And that's what this is talking about. Older women, likewise, should be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. It doesn't say teaching Bible doctrine. It defines what the good things are. The older women are to admonish. It's a different word here. It's not the nutheteo, which means to straighten out the thinking. It has to do with helping them uh, uh, secure balance and temperateness in their life. I admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God might not be blasphemed. Yeah, that last one is the real kicker. Because if you as a young woman are not doing these things, then you're blaspheming the word of God. And if older women aren't helping the younger women figure out how to do this, the end result is the word of God is treated disrespectfully. That's what it means uh, to blaspheme. So there's, there are certain roles defined for older women and younger women. Same thing's true for older men and younger men. And I'll come back and hit this again uh, a little later on. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things, to realize that ultimately the pattern we're to look to is Jesus Christ. He suffered unjustly. He was rejected. He was despised. He was called every manner of slanderous and blasphemous thing none of which was true because he was perfect, he was without sin, he was without spot or blemish, and he was the perfect lamb to go to the cross to pay for our sin. Father, we are thankful we have such an example because it puts into perspective our own, our own suffering, our own problems, our own difficulties, and it, it helps us to understand that we're not unique, that we're not being picked on, that we are not, uh, it's not all about us, but that we have a mission as believers, and that is to be a testimony 
not only to human beings, but also to the angels. And that part of that is how we respond in whatever sphere we find ourselves in to unjustified suffering and learning to be authority-oriented and to submit to whatever authority is over us and doing it willfully, joyfully, and happily. Father, we pray for anyone here who is perhaps unsaved, never really understood the gospel, they're unsure of their salvation or their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Salvation is based on work, but it's the work of Christ, not your work. It's based upon his character, his righteousness. And the only way his righteousness becomes our righteousness is when we trust in him. And at that instant, when we have faith alone in Christ, that you give to us, that God the Father gives to us the righteousness of Christ so that we can have then eternal life. We can, we're declared justified, righteous, and therefore we can be saved. Father, I pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied today. I pray in Christ's name, amen.